3. He soldiers, in order to save their homes from plunder, Lin has many memories, it sheltered Kim Jong-un fleeing from the revolting barons, and kept his treasures until he took them away and left them in a still more secure place buried in the sands of the wash. It welcomed Queen Isabella during her retirement at Castle Rising, entertained Edward Ivy when he was hotly pursued by the Earl of Warwick, and has been worthy of its name as a loyal king's town. Another walled town on the Norfolk coast attracts the attention of all who love the relics of ancient times. Great Yarmouth, with its wonderful record of triumphant industry and its associations with many great events in history. Henry III, recognizing the important strategical position of the town in 1260, granted a charter to the townsfolk empowering them to fortify the place with a wall and a moat. But more than a century elapsed before the fortifications were completed. This was partly owing to the Black Death which left few men in Yarmouth to carry on the work. The walls were built of cut flint and stone, and extended from the northeast tower in St. Nicholas Churchyard, called King Henry's Tower, to Blackfriars Tower at the south end, and from the same King Henry's Tower to the northwest tower on the bank of the Bury. Only a few years ago a large portion of this, north of Ramp Row, now called Rampart Road, was taken down, much to the regret of many. And here I may mention a grand movement which might be with advantage imitated in every historic town. A small private company has been formed called the Great Yarmouth Historical Buildings, Limited. Its object is to acquire and preserve the relics of ancient Yarmouth. The founders deserve the highest praise for their public spirit and patriotism. How many cherished objects in vanishing England might have been preserved if each town or county possessed such a valuable association? This Yarmouth Society owns the remains of the cloisters of Grey Friars and other remains of ancient buildings. It is only to be regretted that it was not formed earlier. There were nine gates in the walls of the town, but none of them are left, and of the sixteen towers which protected the walls only a very few remain. These walls guard much that is important. The ecclesiastical buildings are very fine, including the largest parish church in England, founded by the same Herbert de Luzengott whose good work we saw at King's Lynn. The Church of St. Nicholas has had many vicissitudes, and is now one of the finest in the country. It was in medieval times the church of a Benedictine priory, a cell of the monastery at Norwich and the priory hall remains, and is now restored and used as a school. Royal guests have been entertained there, but part of the buildings were turned into cottages and the great hall into stables. As we have said, part of the Grey Friars Monastery remains, and also part of the house of the Augustine Friars. The Yarmouth rows are a great feature of the town. They are not like the Chester rows, but are long, narrow streets crossing the town from east to west, only six feet wide, and one row called Kitty which is only measures at one end two feet three inches. It has been suggested that this plan of the town arose from the fishermen hanging out their nets too dry and leaving a narrow passage between each other's nets, and that in course of time these narrow passages became defined and were permanently retained. In former days rich merchants and traders lived in the houses that line these rows, and had large gardens behind their dwellings, and sometimes you can see relics of former greatness a paneled room or a richly decorated ceiling, but the ancient glory of the rows is past, and the houses are occupied now by fishermen or laborers. These rows are so narrow that no ordinary vehicle could be driven along them, hence there arose special Yarmouth carts about three and a half feet wide and twelve feet long with wheels underneath the body. Very brave and gallant have always been the fishermen of Yarmouth, not only in fighting the elements, but in defeating the enemies of England. 
History tells of many a sea fight in which they did good service to their kin and country. They gallantly helped to win the Battle of Sluis, and sent 43 ships and 1,000 men to help with the siege of Calais in the time of Edward III. They captured and burned the town and harbor of Cherbourg in the time of Edward I and performed many other acts of daring. One of the most interesting houses in the town is the Toll House, the center of the civic life of Yarmouth. It is said to be 600 years old, having been erected in the time of Henry III, though some of the windows are decorated, but may have been inserted later. Here the customs or tolls were collected, and the corporation held its meetings. There is a curious open external staircase leading to the first floor, where the great hall is situated. Under the hall is a jail, a wretched prison wherein the miserable captives were chained to a beam that ran down the center. Nothing in the town bears stronger witness to the industry and perseverance of the Yarmouth men in the harbor. They had scoured the sea for a thousand years to fill their nets with its spoil, and made their trade of worldwide fame. But their port speaks louder in their praise. Again and again has the fickle sea played havoc with their harbor, silting it up with sand and deserting the town as if in revenge for the harvest they reap from her. They have had to cut out no less than seven harbors in the course of the town's existence and royally had they triumphed over all difficulties and made Yarmouth a great and prosperous port. Near Yarmouth is the little port of Girlstown with its old jetty head, of which we give an illustration. It was once the rival of Yarmouth. The old magnificent church of the Augustine Friars stood in this village and had a lofty, square, embattled tower which was a landmark to sailors, but the church was unroofed and despoiled at the Reformation, and its remains were pulled down in 1760 only a small portion of the tower remaining, and this fell a victim to a violent storm at the beginning of the last century. The Grand Parish Church was much plundered at the Reformation, and left piteously bare by the despoilers. The town, now incorporated with Yarmouth, has a proud boast, Girlstown was Girlstown ere Yarmouth begun, and will be Girlstown when Yarmouth is done. Another leading East Anglian port in former days was the county town of Suffolk, Ipswich. During the 13th and 14th century ships from most of the countries of Western Europe disembarked their cargoes on its keys wines from Spain, timber from Norway, cloth from Flanders, salt from France, and mercury from Italy left its crowded wharves to be offered for sale in the narrow, busy streets of the borough, stores of fish from Iceland, bales of wool, loads of attend hides, as well as the varied agricultural produce of the district, were exposed twice in the week on the market stalls. The learned editor of the Memorials of Old Suffolk, who knows the old town so well, tells us that the stalls of the numerous markets lay within a narrow limit of space near the principal churches of the town St. Mariel Tower, St. Mildred, and St. Lawrence. The Tavern Street of today was the site of the flesh market or cowrie. A narrow street leading thence to the Tower Church was the Poultry, and Cook's Row, Butter Market, Cheese and Fish Markets were in the vicinity. The manufacture of leather was the leading industry of old Ipswich, and there was a goodly company of skinners, barkers, and tanners employed in the trade. Tavern Street had, as its name implies, many taverns, and was called the Vintry, from the large number of opulent vintners who carried on their trade with London and Bordeaux. Many of these men were not merely peaceful merchants, but fought with Edward III in his wars with France and were knight for their feats of arms. Ipswich once boasted of a castle which was destroyed in Stephen's reign. In Saxon times it was fortified by a ditch and a rampart which were destroyed by the Danes, but the fortifications were renewed in the time of King John, when a wall was built round the town with four gates which took their names from the points of the compass, 
Portions of these remain to bear witness to the importance of this ancient town. We give views of an old building near the Custom House in College Street and 4th Street. Examples of the narrow, tortuous thoroughfares which modern improvements have not swept away. C.F. Memorials of Suffolk, edited by V.B. Redstone. We cannot give accounts of all the old fortified towns in England and can only make selections. We had alluded to the ancient walls of York. Few cities can rival it in interest and architectural beauty. Its relics of Roman times. Its stately and magnificent cathedral. The beautiful ruins of Street Mary's Abbey. The numerous churches exhibiting all the grandeur of the various styles of Gothic architecture. The old merchant's hall. And the quaint old narrow streets with gabled houses and widely projecting stories. And then there is the varied history of the place dating from far off Roman times. Not the least interesting feature of your car its gates and walls. Some parts of the walls are Roman. That curious 13-sided building called the Miltonguilar Tower forming part of it. And also the lower part of the wall leading from this tower to Bar. The upper part being of later origin. These walls have witnessed much fighting. And the cannons in the Civil War during the siege in 1644 battered down some portions of them and sorely tried their hearts. But they have been kept in good preservation and repaired at times. And the part on the west of the Ouse is especially well preserved. You can see some Norman and early English work. But the bulk of it belongs to Edwardian times. When York played a great part in the history of England. And King Edward I made it his capital during the war with Scotland. And all the great nobles of England sojourned there. Edward I spent much time there. And the minster saw the marriage of his son. These walls were often sorely needed to check the inroads of the Scots. After Bannockburn 15,000 of these northern warriors advanced to the gates of York. The four gates of the city are very remarkable. Mitlegate Gate Bar consists of a square tower built over a circular arch of Norman date with embattled turrets at the angles. On it the heads of traitors were formerly exposed. It bears on its front the arms of France as well as those of England. Bootham Bar is the main entrance from the north, and has a Norman arch with later additions and turrets with narrow slits for the discharge of arrows. It saw the burning of the suburb of Bootham in 1265 and much bloodshed. When a mighty quarrel raged between the citizens and the monks of the Abbey of St. Mary owing to the abuse of the privilege of sanctuary possessed by the monastery, Monk Bar has nothing to do with monks. Its former name was Goodromgate, and after the restoration it was changed to Monk Bar in honor of General Monk. The present structure was probably built in the 14th century. Longgate Bar, a strong, formidable structure, was built in the reign of Edward I and as we have said, it is the only gate that retains its curious barbican, originally built in the time of Edward III and rebuilt in 1648. The inner front of the gate has been altered from its original form in order to secure more accommodation within. The remains of the Clifford's Tower, which played an important part in the siege, tell of the destruction caused by the blowing up of the magazine in 1683, an event which had more the appearance of design than accident. York abounds with quaint houses and narrow streets. We give an illustration of the curious Melia's passage, the origin of the name I am at a loss to conjecture. Chester Island we believe, the only city in England which has retained the entire circuit of its walls complete. According to old and reliable legends, Marius, or Marcius, king of the British, grandson of Cymbeline, who began his reign A.D. 73, first surrounded Chester with a wall, a mysterious person who must be classed with Leon Gore, or Vavre a mighty strong giant who founded Chester, digging caverns in the rocks for habitations, and with the story of Ken Lear, who first made human habitations in the future city, possibly there was here a British camp, 
it was certainly a Roman city, and has preserved the form and plan which the Romans were accustomed to affect, its four principal streets diverging at right angles from a common center, and extending north, east, south, and west, and terminating in a gate, the other streets forming in Suli as at Silchester. There is every reason to believe that the Romans surrounded the city with a wall. Its strength was often tried. Hither the Saxons came under Ethelthrift and pillaged the city, but left it to the Britons, who were not again dislodged until Egbert came in 828 and recovered it. The Danish pirates came here and were besieged by Alfred, who slew all within its walls. These walls were standing but ruinous when the noble daughter of Alfred, Ethelfleda, restored them in 907. A volume would be needed to give a full account of Chester's varied history, and our main concern is with the treasures that remain. The circumference of the walls is nearly two miles, and there are four principal gates besides posterns the north, east, bridge gate, and water gate. The north gate was in the charge of the citizens, the others were held by persons who had that office by sergeanty under the earls of Chester, and were entitled to certain tolls, which, with the custody of the gates, were frequently purchased by the corporation. The custody of the bridge gate belonged to the Rabbi family in the reign of Edward II. It had two round towers, on the westernmost of which was an octagonal water tower. These were all taken down in 171081 and the gate rebuilt. The east gate was given by Edward I to Henry Bradford, who was bound to find a crannock and a bushel for measuring the salt that might be brought in needless to say. The old gate has vanished. It was of Roman architecture and consisted of two arches formed by large stones, between the tops of the arches, which were cased with Norman masonry, was the whole length figure of a Roman soldier, this gate was a port of Principales, the termination of the great Watling Street that led from Dover through London to Chester, it was destroyed in 1768, and the present gate erected by Earl Grosvenor, the custody of the water gate belonged to the Earls of Derby, it also was destroyed, and the present arch erected in 1788. A new north gate was built in 1809 by Robert, Earl Grosvenor. The principal postern gates were Kale Yard Gate, made by the abbot and convent in the reign of Edward I as a passage to their kitchen garden, New Gate, formerly Wolfield or Wolf Gate, repaired in 1608, also called Pepper Gate, and Ship Gate, or Hole in the Wall, which alone retains its Roman arch, and leads to a ferry across the Dee. The Chester folk had a proverb, when the daughter is stolen. Shut Peppergate, referring to the well-known story of a daughter of a mayor of Chester having made her escape with her lover through this gate, which he ordered to be closed, but too late to prevent the fugitives. The walls are strengthened by round towers so placed as not to be beyond bowshot of each other, in order that their arrows might reach the enemy who should attempt to scale the walls in the intervals. At the northeast corner is Newton's Tower, better known as the Phoenix from a sculptured figure, the ensign of one of the city guilds appearing over its door. From this tower Charles I saw the Battle of Rodenheath and the defeat of his troops during the famous Siege of Chester. This was one of the most prolonged and deadly in the whole history of the Civil War. It would take many pages to describe the varied fortunes of the gallant Chester men, who were at length constrained to feed on horses, dogs, and cats. There is much in the city to delight the antiquary and the artist the famous Rose, the three-gabled old timber mansion of the Stanleys with its massive staircase oaken floors, and paneled walls, built in 1591, Bishop Lloyd's house in Watergate with its timber front sculptured with scripture subjects, and God's Providence house with its motto, God's Providence is mine inheritance, 
the inhabitants of which are said to have escaped one of the terrible plagues that used to rage frequently in Old Chester. Journeying southwards we come to Shrewsbury, another walled town, abounding with delightful half-timbered houses, less spoiled than any town we know. It was never a Roman town, though six miles away, at Uriconium. The Romans had a flourishing city with a great basilica, baths, shops, and villas, and the usual accessories of luxury. Tradition says that its earliest Celtic name was Pungwern, where a British prince had his palace, but the town Scrobisbyrg came into existence under Offa's rule in Mercia, and with the Normans came Roger de Montgomery, Shrewsbury's first earl, and a castle and the stately abbey of SS, Peter and Paul. A little later the town took to itself walls, which were abundantly necessary on account of the constant inroads of the wild Welsh, for the Barbicans Massey and High, Blowdy Jackie, and the oak door is heavy and brown, and with iron it's plated and bishocolated, to pour boiling oil and lead down, how you'd frown should a label full fall on your crown, the rock that it stands on is steep, Blowdy Jackie, to gain it one's forced for to creep, the portcullis is strong, and the drawbridge is long, and the water runs all round the keep, at a peep you can see that the moat's very deep. So rhymed the author of the Ingoldsby Legends, when in his Legend of Shropshire, he described the redstone fortress that towers over the loop of the Severn enclosing the picturesque old town of Shrewsbury. The castle, or rather its keep, for the outworks have disappeared, has been modernized past antiquarian value now. Memories of its importance as the key of the northern marshes, and of the ancient custom of girding the knights of the shire with their swords by the sheriffs on the grass plot of its inner court, still remain. The town now stands on a peninsula girt by the Severn, on the high ground between the narrow neck stood the castle, and under its shelter most of the houses of the inhabitants. Around this was erected the first wall. The latest historian of Shrewsbury tells us that it started from the gate of the castle, passed along the ridge at the back of Pride Hill, at the bottom of which it turned along the line of High Street past Street Julian's church which overhung it, to the top of Wildcop, when it followed the ridge back to the castle, of the part extending from Pride Hill to a Wildcop only scant traces exist at the back of more modern buildings, the Ref, Tion, Shrewsbury Mavoan and Company, the town continued to grow and more extensive defenses were needed, and in the time of Henry III, Mr. Auden states that this followed the old line at the back of Pride Hill, but as the ground began to slope downwards, Another wall branched from it in the direction of Rousheel and extended to the Welsh Bridge. This became the main defense, leaving the old wall as an inner rampart. From the Welsh Bridge the new wall turned up Claremont Bank to where Street Chad's Church now stands, and where one of the original towers stood. Then it passed along Mourivants, where the only existing tower is to be seen, and so along the still remaining portion of the wall to English Bridge, where it turned up the hill at the back of what is now Dogpole and passing the Watergate, again joined the fortifications of the castle. The castle itself was reconstructed by Prince Edward, the son of Henry III, at the end of the 13th century, and is of the Edwardian type of concentric castle. The Norman keep was incorporated within a larger circle of tower and wall, forming an inner bailey, besides this there was formerly an outer bailey, in which were various buildings, including the chapel of St. Nicholas. Only part of the buildings on one side of the inner bailey remains in its original form, but the massive character of the whole may be judged from the fragments now visible. Ibid. Page 48. These walls guarded a noble town full of churches and monasteries, merchants' houses, guild halls, and much else. We will glance at the beauties that remain, 
street berries, containing specimens of every style of architecture from Norman downward, with its curious foreign glass, Street Julians, mainly rebuilt in 1748, though the old tower remains, Street Altmuts, the Church of St. Chad, Street Giles's Church, and the nave and refectory pulpit of the Monastery of SS. Peter and Paul, it is distressing to see this interesting gem of 14th century architecture amid the incongruous surroundings of a coal yard. You can find considerable remains of the domestic buildings of the Grey Friars Monastery near the footbridge across the Severn, and also of the home of the Austin Friars in a builder's yard at the end of Baker Street. In many towns we find here and there an old half-timbered dwelling, but in Shrewsbury there is a surprising wealth of them streets full of them, bearing such strange medieval names as Martel or Wildcop. Shrewsbury is second to no other town in England in the interest of its ancient domestic buildings. There is the gatehouse of the old council house, bearing the date 1620, with its high gable and carved barge boards, its paneled front, the square spaces between the upright and horizontal timbers being ornamented with cut timber. The old buildings of the famous Shrewsbury School are now used as a free library and museum and abound in interest. The house remains in which Prince Rupert stayed during his sojourn in 1644, then owned by Master Jones the lawyer, at the west end of Street Mary's Church with its fine old staircase, Whitehall, a fine mansion of red sandstone, was built by Richard Prince, a lawyer, in 1578-82, to his great charge with fame to Hind and High's posterite forever, the old market hall in the Renaissance style, with its mixture of debased Gothic and classic details, is worthy of study, even in Shrewsbury we have to record the work of the Demon of Destruction. The erection of the new market hall entailed the disappearance of several old picturesque houses. Bellstone House, erected in 1582, is incorporated in the National Provincial Bank. The old mansion known as Vaughn's Place is swallowed up by the music hall, though part of the ancient dwelling place remains. St. Peter's Abbey Church in the commencement of the 19th century had an extraordinary annex of timber and plaster, probably used at one time as parsonage house, which with several buttressed remains of the adjacent conventual buildings, have long ago been squared up and improved out of existence. Rowley's Mansion, in Hills Lane, built of brick in 1618 by William Rowley, is now a warehouse. Butcher Road has some old houses with projecting stories, including a fine specimen of a medieval shop. Some of the houses in Grove Lane lean together from opposite sides of the road, so that people in the highest story can almost shake hands with their neighbors across the way. You can see the old house in which Mary Tudor is said to have stayed, and the mansion of the Owens, built in 1592 as an inscription tells us, and that of the Irelands, with its range of bow windows, four stories high, and terminating in gables, erected about 1579, the half-timbered hall of the Draper's Guild, some old houses in Frankwell including the inn with the quaint sign the string of horses, the ancient hostels the lion, famous in the coaching age, the ship, and the raven Bennett's hall, which was the mint when Shrewsbury played its part in the Civil War, and last, but not least, the house in Wildcop, one of the finest in the town, where Henry Earl of Richmond stayed on his way to Bosworth Field to win the English crown, such are some of the beauties of old Shrewsbury which happily had not yet vanished. Not far removed from Shrewsbury is Coventry, which at one time could boast of a city wall and a castle. In the reign of Richard I this wall was built, strengthened by towers. Leland, writing in the time of Henry VII, states that the city was begun to be walled in when Edward I reigned, and that it had six gates, 
many fair towers, and streets well built with timber. Other writers speak of 32 towers and 12 gates, but few traces of these remain. The citizens of Coventry took an active part in the civil war in favor of the parliamentary army, and when Charles I.I. came to the throne he ordered these defenses to be demolished. The gates were left, but most of them have since been destroyed. Coventry is a city of fine old timber-framed 15th-century houses with gables and carved barge boards and projecting stories, though many of them are decayed and may not last many years. The city has had a fortunate immunity from serious fires. We give an illustration of one of the old Coventry streets called Spawn Street, with its picturesque houses. These old streets are numerous, tortuous and irregular. One of the richest and most interesting examples of domestic architecture in England is Street Mary's Hall. Erected in the time of Henry VI, its origin is connected with ancient guilds of the city, and in it were stored their books and archives, the grotesquely carved roof, minstrel's gallery, armory, state chair, great painted window, and a fine specimen of 15th century tapestry are interesting features of this famous hall, which furnishes a vivid idea of the manners and civic customs of the age when Coventry was the favorite resort of kings and princes. It has several fine churches. Though the cathedral was leveled with the ground by that arch-destroyer Henry VIII, Coventry remains one of the most interesting towns in England. One other walled town we will single out for a special notice in this chapter the quaint, picturesque, peaceful, placid town of Rye on the Sussex coast. It was once wooed by the sea, which surrounded the rocky island on which it stands, but the fickle sea has retired and left it lonely on its hill with a long stretch of marshland between it and the waves. This must have taken place about the 15th century. Our illustration of a disused mooring post page 24 is a symbol of the departed greatness of the town as a naval station. The river Rother connects it with the sea, and the few barges and humble craft and a few small shipbuilding yards remind it of its palmy days when it was a member of the Sink Ports, a rich and prosperous town that sent forth its ships to fight the naval battles of England and win honor for Rye and St. George. During the French wars English vessels often visited French ports and towns along the coast and burned and pillaged them. The French sailors retaliated with equal zest, and many of our southern towns had suffered from fire and sword during those adventurous days. Rye was strongly fortified by a wall with gates and towers and a fosse, but the defenses suffered grievously from the attacks of the French, and the folk of Rye were obliged to send a moving petition to King Richard I.I praying him, to have consideration of the poor town of Rye, inasmuch as it had been several times taken, and is unable further to repair the walls, wherefore the town island on the seaside, open to enemies, I am afraid that the king did not at once grant their petition, as two years later, in 1380, the French came again and set fire to the town, with the departure of the sea and the diminishing of the harbor, the population decreased and the prosperity of Rye declined, Refugees from France have on two notable occasions added to the number of its inhabitants. After the massacre of St. Bartholomew 700 scared and frightened Protestants arrived at Rye and brought with them their industry, and later on, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, many Huguenots settled here and made it almost a French town. We need not record all the royal visits, the alarms of attack, the plagues, and other incidents that have diversified the life of Rye. We will glance at the relics that remain. The walls seem never to have recovered from the attack of the French, but one gate is standing the land gate on the northeast of the town, built in 1360, and consisting of a broad arch flanked by two massive towers with chambers above for archers and defenders. Formerly there were two other gates, 
but these had vanished save only the sculptured arms of the sink ports that once adorned the Strand Gate. The Ypres Tower is a memorial of the ancient strength of the town, and was originally built by William de Ypres, Earl of Kent, in the 12th century, but has received later additions. It has a stern, gaunt appearance, and until recent times was used as a jail. The church possesses many points of unique interest. The builders began in the 12th century to build the tower and transepts, which are Norman, then they proceeded with the nave, which is transitional, and when they reached the choir, which is very large and fine, the style had merged into the early English. Later windows were inserted in the 14th and 15th centuries. The church has suffered with the town at the hands of the French invaders, who did much damage. The old clock, with its huge swinging pendulum, is curious. The church has a collection of old books, including some old Bibles, including a vinegar and a breeches Bible, and some stone cannon balls, mementos of the French invasion of 1448. Near the church is the town hall, which contains several relics of olden days. The list of mayors extends from the time of Edward I and we notice the long continuance of the office in families. Thus the Lambs held office from 1723 to 1832 and the Grebels from 1631 to 1741. A great tragedy happened in the churchyard. A man named Breeds had a grudge against one of the lambs, and intended to kill him. He saw, as he thought, his victim walking along the dark path through the shrubs in the churchyard, attacked and murdered him. But he had made a mistake, his victim was Mr. Grebel. The murderer was hanged and quartered. The town hall contains the ancient pillory, which was described as a very handy affair. Handcuffs leg irons, special constable staves, which were always much needed for the usual riots on gunpowder plot day, and the old primitive fire engine dated 1745. The town has some remarkable plate. There is the mayor's handbell with the inscription, O Mater D.I. Memento M.I. 1566. P.D.R.U.S.G.H.E.I.N.E.U.S.M.E.F.E.C.I.D. The Maces of Queen Elizabeth with the date 1578.